The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 8. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, that gospel reading for today, though it's eight chapters after the gospel reading we had last week, it really follows that gospel reading up very well. Um, For those of you who didn't have the flu last week and so were able to be here, uh, you know that in that that reading last week, Jesus, still dripping wet from his baptism, is immediately driven by the Holy Spirit of God out into the wilderness where he confronts, wrestles with Satan, the whisperer whose whispers are precisely not the whispers of God and who tells Jesus, who had heard this voice from heaven saying, you're the son of God, he tells Jesus, and whatever are the ways that you hear these things, he tells Jesus that the plans and purposes that he has come to believe that God has for him are not to be turned toward, but to be turned from. Because, well, because first of all, how does anybody actually know that that was God they heard talking? And secondly, because in the real world, Jesus, people who have set out on the kind of plans that are as naive and mushy-gushy, mercy-worsy, lovey-dovey as that plan you think you're setting out on right now, people on that path every time Jesus have ended up either ignored or deemed irrelevant or done away with. Jesus won last week's round one in that battle between him and the voice of Satan, the voice of not God. And then he left the wilderness to begin doing all the things that he would believed he was called by God to do and to be all the things that he believed he was called by God to be, which began by going into the world oppressed by its kings and kingdoms to announce that in him, the kingdom of God, which was a very different thing from the world's kingdoms and kingdoms, the kingdom of God in him was near. And it was here, as was not just more bad news, but rather true and truly good news, for it was the good news of God and of God's love for this world. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus keeps on doing that, preaching and teaching and also healing and miracle working from one place to another till finally we come, 
here now to March chap- Mark chapter 8. We're almost now just about exactly halfway through Mark's gospel. Finally, Jesus pauses. And he takes his disciples aside. And he says to them, and this is just to them at this point, so I've done all that I've done. I've said all that I've said. We've gone all the places we've gone. What are people saying? Who do they think I am? They told him it was a very good question because, in fact, people were saying all kinds of things. Some were saying they told him that he was Elijah, come back from his fiery chariot ride to heaven. As the prophet said, Elijah would one day come back. And others said that he was John the Baptist, come back from the dead, as he surely should after the injustice that had been shown to him. And others said he was all kinds of other things to which Jesus didn't comment. Rather, he then said, how about you? You've been through it all with me. Who do you say that I am? And that is when Peter became the first one in ever out loud to say, you are not someone, you are the one. You are the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And then Jesus did comment. He said, don't tell anyone. Which seems at first like the oddest thing Jesus ever said until you keep reading and in doing so you come to our reading for today and there you realize that though Peter clearly and boldly did know who Jesus was, he also clearly and as it turns out boldly had no idea what being Jesus was was to mean, what Jesus knew it would mean, what Jesus and the Father both fully intended for it to mean for the salvation of this real and really broken world. And so now in our gospel reading for today, for the very first time, not the last time, because it turns out this isn't going to sink right in, but for the very first time, Jesus now told them exactly what being who he was would mean. As he says in Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And Peter then, says Mark 8, 32, took him aside and began to rebuke him, scold him, lecture him. But turning and looking at his disciples, says Mark 8.33, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Why does this text follow so well from late last week's text, even though it's eight chapters along? Because last week, at the beginning of the story and the crucial moment of coming out to be baptized and being named the Son of God and then going out to begin being the Son of God by doing all the things that he did and saying all the things he said, who's the first one to meet him on the path of that journey at that crucial moment? The tempter. Satan, whispering in the wilderness, in a way that sounded whatever like whispers in the wilderness do sound like and saying to Jesus and to his sense of identity and to his sense of call saying no no seriously no really Jesus you don't you you don't want to do that 
There's a way better way than the way that voice will lead you on. It's called my way, Jesus. It's much more pleasant, I promise you. To which Jesus said, no way. And now this chapter, eight chapters later, a second key moment in Jesus' ministry, a crossroads moment in Jesus' ministry, and I use the word crossroads literally because this is a decisive moment when Jesus for the first time tells his disciples that the way of the Father's love for the world will be the way of a cross, and who at that crucial moment makes his first credited appearance in the Gospel of Mark since chapter 1 and the wilderness? The tempter, Satan, this time sounding not like the quiet and chilling whispers of the wilderness, but this sound, this time sounding like the hot and bold rebuke of Peter, one of his very own chosen and beloved, saying to him, you're the Messiah for crying out loud, Jesus, stop with the suffering and dying talk already and start acting like it. Jesus turned then, and the Greek grammar construction suggests he may actually have paused for a second then, which leaves open the possibility that maybe this temptation, which sounded like the voice of his friend and follower, actually gave him pause, as being questioned and challenged by a close friend often does do, as one would think that thinking about a cross pretty much would inevitably do, but then it says... He looked at the other disciples who were looking on, and then he looked back at Peter, and he said to Peter, Get out of my way and get behind me, Satan. Round one in the Satan versus Peter match. Give the devil his due and two points for a takedown. Round two in the Satan versus Jesus match. Another win for Jesus who turned now to Peter and the rest of the disciples and all the crowds. It says he called them all over. And then he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up a cross. What does that actually mean? Jesus' case, of course, it meant something very literal and very specific, and that is that being him, being the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, wasn't going to get him glorified until it first got him crucified. And he understood that. The disciples, of course, didn't understand that, which is entirely understandable, given the fact that whereas most of the crosses we've ever seen are gold-plated or diamond-studded, All of the crosses they had ever seen, and they had seen plenty, were blood-plated and nail-studded, instruments of as horrible a means of capital punishment as any government has ever had its Justice Department endorse and its Department of Corrections carry out. And so, no, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior being yet one more corpse stuck to a beam of wood, they didn't understand that. They would, but they didn't yet. And then being talking about following him by picking up some beans and nails for themselves too, 
They didn't understand that yet either. They would, but they didn't understand it yet. They didn't yet know that just as in his case, but also in theirs, this invitation to follow Jesus and die for doing so would be true for all of them in one way or another, literally. But what about us? Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said, not just to the disciples, but to that whole crowd. What does that mean? Does it, does it mean anything, literally? Does it mean anything at all when it comes to us? That's my cross to bear, people say sometimes. And they say that referring to something difficult, although often it seems to me when people use that phrase, they, they do so kind of lightly sometimes even humorously, talking about something, in other words, that's not all that terribly difficult. Something that's maybe a pain, but it's not painful. Had a young woman tell me her brother was her cross to bear. In some cases, people use it to find, to say something that just they're just saying that he's annoying. This is annoying, but by and large, this is unavoidable. Here's the thing, when Jesus talks about taking up a cross, he's not talking about any and all kinds of pain or suffering. Cross-bearing, I think, is a very specific kind of suffering. And the one thing cross-bearing suffering is not, I think, is unavoidable. Cross-bearing suffering, I think, is actually the opposite of that, something that you could avoid, but you choose not to. And you choose not to for a greater good that is not good primarily or maybe even at all for you, but for others. A cross is suffering that one takes on, on purpose, for the good of others. Places in the world today, it's literally true. It can even be literally true in its own way in our country today. As, for example, when a football coach in Florida stands on purpose between students and an active shooter, and he dies, and they live. And in that moment, did he consciously think to himself, I'm going to take up a cross and follow Jesus now? I sincerely doubt it. But I do think that prior to that moment, Aaron Feist was formed for what he did do in that moment, and Jesus was part of the formative process. I say that having read the Facebook post of a student and football player at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School who said that Feist was there for him when he was going through leukemia treatments. Quote, he guided me through them. He would send me prayers. He would send me Bible scripts and just stuff to cheer up my day, unquote. And then one day, this man in whom apparently the word of God dwelt, maybe without a single thought, did do what he did. And he could have avoided it. And he died. And others lived. That's taking up a cross. 
There are countless other examples, most of them not nearly so dramatic, but powerful. Like the woman I know who has been a hospice volunteer for as long as I think there's been hospice in this country. And what she does as a hospice volunteer is visit an assigned person regularly, I mean every week at least, for as long as they are with hospice, which almost always, not always, but almost always means until they die. And when they die, listen, you don't go into this line of volunteer work unless you've got a big heart. And when they die, her heart breaks every time. She grieves, she mourns, she cries, she hurts deeply. And she takes some time that she needs then to start to heal. And then, inevitably, every time, she goes back to her hospice supervisor and says, I'm ready again. She is, to borrow a phrase from the prophet Isaiah, a woman of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And her grief, her cycle of sorrow, this is cross-bearing. For it is suffering. It's avoidable. But she doesn't avoid it. She takes it up. She takes it on. And she does so for others. I think of cross-bearing also, and I'm deeply moved when I think of the many of the most generous people I've ever known, which I don't measure by how much they give, but rather by how, how much they give compares to how much they have. And I know that the generosity they are generous with, generous with isn't a gratuity or a tip, but an actual sacrifice. Because I know that there are some actually literal things they will have to do without because of that generosity. But they're generous anyway, and by and large, just about exclusively generous joyfully. And the things they've chosen literally to do without so they can do more, that in its own powerful way, in my mind, is a cross they've chosen to take up to follow Jesus. Those things, those things that aren't things but are rather faith in action are the kinds of things Jesus is talking about and inviting us to when he invites us, invites us all to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow after not more things for us but more him for the world through us because we believe he's the Christ the Messiah, the Lord of not just all, but the Lord of our all. And yes, there's not a single one of us real people who's all in on that all the time because there are whisperers in our hearts too, whisperers who tell us of our right to be prosperous, strong, successful, influential, but Jesus has other priorities. His ways are not the ways of the world or the world's whisperers. His way is the way of God's love for the world. And to all who come to believe that, he does say, give what is yours to give. Give up what is yours to give up and follow me for the healing of the world. Amen.